Morning Glory and Evening Grace, America 2. You have time for the weekly Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn or one of his colleagues. Dr. Arn, of course, is the president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at uh, hugh4hillsdale.com, and the link is over at hughhewitt.com. Dr. Arn, always a pleasure. Thanks. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. I would like to, to get back to Plutarch in a hurry, but first, it was an extraordinary day today in Washington, D.C., when President Obama went to the press office to speak for 17 minutes, which I played earlier in the show, about a criminal prosecution that ended in a not guilty verdict against the backdrop of revolution in Egypt, civil war in Syria, Russia's got Snowden, the Castro brothers are sending missiles to North Korea, uh, bad economy, I mean, all sorts of stuff going on. And the president spoke for 17 minutes about this. What do you make of this, Dr. Art? Well, it's the racial divide in the country, which the president fosters and benefits from. And, uh, you know, what he said today was actually mostly good, except for one thing he didn't say. Uh, he said that the judge did a good job, and in our system, the, uh, the, the, that, that's it, he said, in our system. He might have said very well, it's the hallmark of our system that the law is applied to individuals by an independent branch of government. But he said, he, he acknowledged that. And then he implied that the Justice Department is not going to bring civil charges, civil rights violation charges against Zimmerman. So I thought those were good things. What he might not have said was, what he might have said that he didn't say is, shouldn't we all remember that the facts in the case have to be judged on their own and that, and that Trevon Martin and Mr. Zimmerman have to be a, a judged by the same standard, whatever their color might be? Yeah, he ought to have said that. That would have been in keeping with the legacy of Lincoln and the 14th Amendment. What I'm alarmed by, uh, Dr. Larry Arn, is that this is so obviously off of his duties chart and that a Friday afternoon press appearance with no other questions against the backdrop of these sweeping important events diminishes the importance of them and magnifies what was, in essence, a waning public moment. It's as though he threw another log on the fire. Well, you know, the census data about the election comes up and says he did, you know, extraordinarily well with the black vote, which grew and which the blacks voted in greater percentages than the whites. He's probably mindful of that. And, you know, those things that you're talking about that are going on in the world that he didn't mention, he did mention them at the beginning and said, we'll have a press conference soon about all that stuff. But today, it's this thing. And, and it's very right, you know, where's Calvin Coolidge when we need him? <laughs> who had the way of saying just the thing it was appropriate for the President of the United States to say. And, you know, think of another court case. There was a court case that Abraham Lincoln didn't like, really didn't like, and it had massive uh, implications for the Constitution and national policy, the Dred Scott decision, which basically decided that the platform of the Republican Party was illegal. So it had it been carried into effect, what Lincoln wanted to do, forbid slavery in the federal territories, could not have been. What did Lincoln say about that? In a very beautiful beginning, he said that in, the, in, the, in cases between two parties, courts decide, and that is it. And so emphatic like that, that's a thing a president might very well have said. Now, in the bridge to our conversation today, and we were talking about 
two uh, of the lives in Plutarch, uh, specifically Alcibiades and um, Coriolanus. Coriolanus. And and, uh, at the end of the comparison of those two lives, and we'll talk about them, Plutarch says, Alcibiades never professed to deny that it was pleasant to him to be honored and distasteful to him to be overlooked. And and I, I having just read this in preparation to talk to you, the president's appearing today. He can't stand not to be at the center of this stuff, Larry. Yeah, and it's an opportunity for him. And you know his own upbringing. By the way, he went to Punahou School. I think is how you say it. Right. In 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 Honolulu, which is an elite private school. His name was not even Barack Obama at the time that he went. And, you know, he says that in his youth, he might have been Trevon Martin. He had a very different kind of upbringing from Trevon Martin. And and that's just not right, you know. In other words, he might have said much more truly, those of us who have not lived in the conditions that Trevon Martin lived in should should think hard about that. But he should have said us, because he's never lived in those conditions. Uh, the The end of that paragraph I read continues for his temperance continence and probity he claims to be compared with the best and purest of the Greeks not in any sort of kind with Alcibiades the least scrupulous and most entirely careless of human beings in all these points you think the president is careless of his duties Larry Arn I do and uh, I, I, I think the president uh, the president loves the imperative mood uh, it's the grammatical construction, you must, you do this, you do that, go there, go there. Sort of the way my mother always talked to my father and made him happy by doing it. But uh, that was a marriage, right? And this is politics. The tone of the greatest presidents is a tone of explanation and reasoning. And and that's the, you know, that's the key. And also, you know, the failure uh, of... Alcibiades, ultimately, and the decisive failure of Coriolanus, about whom we're going to talk, is especially Coriolanus was unable to stoop to conquer, a favorite expression of Winston Churchill's. It's, it's, you know, why shouldn't he speak of his own failings all the time? Yeah. And that would be better, right? And it would, he would carry the office better if that was his way. Uh, a last comment or comparison. I was looking for an analogy to today's 17 Minutes Ramble, and I came up with in 1970, on May 9th, 1970, President Nixon, obviously emotional, jumped in a car without a Secret Service and directed to be driven to the Lincoln Memorial where the anti-war protesters were. And he, it was pre-dawn. It was a very famous but bizarre moment. It was just so not what presidents do. Today, of course, it's dressed up in the White House press office, and it's much more presidential than driving the Lincoln Memorial. But it was an emotional, I, I, I think maybe he just felt like he had to do this, that his inner emotions drove him to this. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for a statesman? Well, they, you know, he, he, his job, I think, is to take, well, I don't think it is. His job is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And the best statesman breed respect for one another among the, st- the citizen body and don't divide them. They look for ways to unite them. And they often do that by sacrificing themselves. And of course, it takes enormous restraint. I mean, we're going to talk about Coriolanus, but 
in the end, he came to death and disaster because he couldn't hold his temper. Yep. Yep. All right. So let, let's turn to that. Uh, the, the, the pair that we have chosen, and I have in, in backup as well, uh, Theseus and Romulus, because they're mythical, and I figure we can always spend as much time as we want there. But there was some debate for a long time if Coriolanus was actually mythical or not, and I think the, the better part of people believe he was a real general. And they, they're roughly contemporaries, aren't they? Uh, roughly. Still a debate. But, uh, yeah, but no, no. Coriolanus was earlier, you know, 100 years or so. But, there, but you know, there is some debate about Coriolanus still. And, but it, it is a brilliant pairing of the two of them because they both were leaders and saviors of their country, and they both joined the chief enemies of their country and fought against it. You see, that is, that's why he joined them. Last week when we, we concluded our first conversation and we had talked about uh, Pericles and Scipio, uh, who are uh, these incredibly successful, not Scipio, but uh, Fabius, these incredibly successful, flawless almost people, you said, let's go find a couple of flawed guys. And <laughs> so uh, this wasn't a hard choice, was it? No, these guys are. And see, uh, to remind people why this is so great, human character, and that word character comes from a Greek word that means to etch or engrave. It's the thing that's deep in you, the things that make you what you are. I read today uh, a transcript of your long interview with the fellow who wrote that book, The Town. Yes. And it was delightful. And also, by the way, it was your part of it, Hugh. That was you. That's what you're like. You're enthusiastic. You interrupted him. You heard him. You look for good things to say about people, and you're driving towards some hard point. You know, the, I, I giggled to myself while I was reading. I said, oh, Hugh's really on a roll with this thing. <laughs> right? That's Hugh. And, that's, and see, when you see Hugh in motion, the character of Hugh, a unique thing, right? And Hugh is indignant about the fact that the governing classes, that there are such things in America, and they hold the people in contempt. And your way of explaining that was so terribly like you. And that means we're all like that. And if you study our lives, you can find out what we're like. Amen to that and a high compliment. Thank you for that. We'll come back and talk about two of the first character studies ever by Plutarch. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. 21 minutes after the America it's Hugh Hewitt, my weekly chat with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. I want to warn all of you listening today that next week our Hillsdale Dialogue is going to be on Thursday, not Friday, for the simple reason that I'm making the annual trek to Disneyland for the broadcast there to help out Disneyland, and we have to do our Hillsdale Dialogue on Thursday. Dr. Arn, you mentioned the, the conversation I had on Wednesday with Mark Leibovich of the New York Times Magazine. I don't know if you've read this town yet, but, uh, but you actually put your finger exactly on what drove me into that book so deep. I, I am disgusted at, at elites and secret cabals, and, and that's going to come up a lot in these two lives. I, I gather at the Kirby Center you work to correct that, but I am truly uh, beginning to to despair of Washington being able to be fixed. Well, what's ill, what's ill there has a deep cause. First of all, I don't really see the 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 Washington that is described in that book, which I can, by the way, only extrapolate what's in the book from reading two reviews of it and now your interview. But I, I don't see that because I'm not in that circuit and it doesn't please me to be. I've got a bunch of kids to teach. 
What we do at the Kirby Center is teach people who want to learn, and people who want to learn old stuff don't tend to be that kind of person. But I, I, I do take the point, and I think I know what causes it. A long time ago, and it's more than 100 years ago now, a class of people arose in America, influenced by strains in German philosophy, and here's what they concluded from it. If we can apply the tools of science to the administration of the American society, we can transform the society into something much better. And it has to be led by a new administrative class that is sophisticated in the science of administration, which, which conception was invented at this time, right? Right. Politics is not understood to be a science, but an art obedient to nature and meeting the challenges of, that nature presents in human affairs. The science of administration is reducing things to objective knowledge so as to manipulate them. And so we set out to build a new class of the government. This deal in the Senate was made about the filibuster precisely yes. so that those people can be appointed more freely. The, the Senate actually voted to confirm four people who are all in agencies quite outside the control of the popular branches. In other words, the Senate voted to, to, to reduce its own power at the expense of this administrative state. And we don't much believe in the, in the perfection of the country in, anymore because that's a vain task and it's had generations of failure now. But the people who are in that administrative class are very attached to it nonetheless. And they have voted themselves more power recently than ever they had before, for example, on the National Labor Relations Board and on, in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which are the two main things that were decided by the confirmations that were voted as a way to get Harry Reid not to end the Senate filibuster, a generations-old practice. So the government is streamlining itself, the popular branches, in order to g give its power in ways that are unaccountable to people who are not elected or accountable to those who are. Now, the incident this week of the threatened destruction of the filibuster, which instead resulted in its mere hollowing out, its euthanasia, in essence, reminded me, we are dealing this week, last week, and in a couple of weeks hence, in Plutarch, a lot of the lives of which come from the period of the Roman Revolution, which stretches over many decades, where the, the game kept changing and old ways were set aside and people tried new radical innovations. And I keep thinking that the Washington, D.C. of the last 15 years, actually since Ted Kennedy came out against Robert Bork, has been one long throwing overboard of the traditions of the past, to which end is, I think, it's stability. What do you think? I, I think uh, a lot of the things that are happening now, first of all, Rasmussen, whom I think is a very interesting pollster, he reports that, that very, you know, to the latest poll is 25% of the American people believe they live under a system of consent of the governed. They think the government has passed outside their hands. And that trend quickened this week. And, and the arguments, well, one thing that's frustrating is the arguments as they were reported against it, you know, is, is the man's name Leibovitz uh, that you interviewed for three hours? Yeah, Mark Leibovitz. Yeah, yep. Leibovitz. He, he's a very smart guy, yes. right? And I think he must be a good guy. For yeah, I think that. so. 
we need people like him to be able to identify better what the heart of the matter is so that the arguments are sharpened and there's more confrontation on the fundamental points. Nobody really said, look, look at the character of these agencies. Are they, in fact, uh, did, are they manifestations of popular rule? Are, are they the, the uh, abnegation of that kind of rule? Because that is, in my opinion, what they are. Yep, yep. So, totally ignored. And so you are, and see, Plutarch is interesting here. I'll make a point for Hugh on the Plutarch front. Plutarch is interesting because, as we said, he's Greek, who you know, lives in the time of Rome, in Rome, and he's comparing these two societies, both of whose constitutions have been impaired, and the unity and the strength of Greece and the virtues of Greece have been compromised, and Rome is on its way to that, he fears. And so he tells the lives of these great people in order partly to tell the story and also describe the interplay of virtues and vices that has led to this terrible pass. And you see a lot of the same thing in America today. And we could spend weeks on Alcibiades. In fact, our friend Victor Davis Hanson wrote a marvelous novel of this character called Tides of War, which I would recommend to people, a lot of which is based on Plutarch, obviously. And I, and I thought I'd get in one question before the break, which is that uh, when Plutarch takes him up, he, he comments on his brilliant and extraordinary beauty and the fact that, that while he said he lisped, he spoke well and rapidly. But this beauty uh, that, he, that he refers to, is that a curse on public men and women? Mm, only uh, beauty is, of course, a virtue. And it's only a curse if they use it well. And by the way, Stephen Pressfield wrote that book. Your other, friend, I'm sorry, Victor I'm sorry. Hansen. And Victor Hansen wrote other brilliant books. Um, but yeah, of course, if any virtue, any any asset or capacity abused is made worse, it's worse if you have a lot of it if it's abused. And Alcibiades is one of the greatest abusers in history. I mean, it's remarkable. A little quick story, Alcibiades helped to provoke and lead in the war against the Spartans that would eventually destroy Athens. Athens turned against him. He defected to the Spartans. He showed the Spartans the way to defeat Athens and was responsible ultimately for the destruction of Athens before he then defected to the Persians and then back to the Athenians. So there are many steps in his story. Darned if he didn't sleep with the wife of the Spartan king and get her pregnant. And that is the ultimate reason for his death. And it was his beauty and his persuasiveness and his glorious possession of the martial virtues that made it possible for him to do the evil that he did as well as the good. We come back, we're going to talk more about him and about Cor- Coriolanus and the incredible contrast between these two. One who was completely persuasive, the other utterly unpersuasive. We'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arnott's The Hillsdale Dialogue, all of which are available at HughForHillsdale.com. Stay tuned. 34 minutes after the hour, America. Two here with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, which you should know about if you don't already. Hillsdale.edu. Sign up for their monthly newsletter. Listen to all of their online courses if you simply wish to be familiar with the founding and Western civilization. Listen to these weekly dialogues if you want to catch up on your all the great works of Western civilization. And they are all cataloged online and for free at Hugh4Hillsdale.com. Uh, Dr. Arn, let me read to you from Plutarch. For never 
And that's a big word. For never did fortune surround and enclose a man with so many of those things which we vulgarly call goods, or so protect him from every weapon of philosophy and fence him from every access of free and searching words as she did Alcibiades, who from the beginning was exposed to the flatteries of those who sought merely his gratification, such as might unwell nerve him, un, as, such as might well unnerve him and indispose him to listen to any real advisor or instructor. In other ways, from the beginning, he was doomed because he was impervious to counsel. He was, uh, he was, he was so fast, you know, so quick and so brilliant. He, he, in the symposium, they record that he tried to seduce Socrates in order to get Socrates to give him wisdom. And Socrates replied that that would be a bad bargain because I would get a vulgar pleasure and you would get something of ultimate worth. It shows the scale of values with Alcibiades. And, you know, think, think of, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I even say this or not, but I thought of someone. Like, I'm a, I'm a cycling fan, and this is the, tomorrow's the second to the last day of the Tour de France, and it's a tremendous spectacle and fun to watch. You should watch it. But I think of Lance Armstrong, because he was an incredibly gifted human being, and he, he rides a bicycle as beautifully and as powerfully as anyone has ever done. But you know, he bullied by report at least the people around him, and he violated the drug policies and lied about it on a kind of engineering scale. And, and in the end, and he abused and everybody who accused him. Yeah. He, he tried to destroy their lives. Well. He was a man of incredible gifts and natural beauty. And Alcibiades is like that, you know, he and, and you know, but more, right? Because Lance Armstrong is riding a bicycle. Alcibiades is fighting wars on land and sea, and he was incredibly good at it. Plutarch says Alcibiades dreamed of nothing less than the conquest of Carthage and Libya. And by the accession of these, conceiving himself at once the master of Italy and the Peloponnese, seemed to look upon Sicily as little more than a magazine for war. And here's the killer. The young men were soon elevated with these hopes and listened gladly to those of riper years. He stirred everyone up so he could become the king of the world. That's it. And, you know, he said, uh, it's recorded, uh, Plutarch records of him that ask about sleeping with the wife of the Spartan king. He said he did it because he wanted... The, the dynasty of Sparta to be his. He wanted his offspring to rule Sparta. And, and that, you know, you, you can't really understand the Platonic Dialogues, in my opinion, until you understand that they're a contest between people who counsel power and Socrates who raises the question of the good. And, of course, two of those dialogues are about Alcibiades, and he's in a third one. It's the, the the bottom line of reading this. Why does Plutarch? He doesn't begin the, the lives with him, but he's very very close to the front. And and what are we supposed to to say about him at the end? Well, he's uh, Alcibiades is, in my opinion, Athens personified. The vices of Al, the virtues of Alcibiades are very much the virtues of Athens. They're eloquent. They're fast. They're bold. They're courageous in war. They, they can do a thousand things at once. They're artful. And the vices, they're changeable. They, they get driven by their passions. You know, they betrayed him as well as him betraying them. Right. When he went off to conquer Sicily. And then the minute, yeah, and you know, they, they, his enemies in Athens, orators, and see, you talk about diseases in our republic, 
they, they found that they weren't strong enough to accuse him of made-up impieties. He's supposed to have defaced a, a, a sacred statue. Um, as he was gathering his troops for war, and so they waited until he had left. And then, absent, they whipped the crowd up and got him accused of a capital crime. And so the point is, they're acting like he acts. And if you're looking for the cause of the destruction of Athens, there was a fever in it, right? And, the, and it, it was not that solid, pious, dutiful thing that it had been. It was now this glory-seeking, pleasure-seeking, passionate thing. And, and no good came when we come back after break. The opposite, the man with whom Alcibiades is paired is Coriolanus, and we'll tell you about him of Shakespeare fame when we come back. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. The Hillsdale Dialogues continue one more segment here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the Our American Hugh Hewitt, this week's Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, and all the dialogues are available at hillsdale.edu or hughforhillsdale.com, or there's a link at my website. Dr. Arn and I are talking about two lives from Plutarch's lives, and we have been focused on Alcibiades, but Coriolanus is the other one. And Dr. Arn, I'm just going to step back because here is a story, and this is a story. So tell people this story and what we ought to draw from it. Well, let me first of all refer you to the greatest of all storytellers, Shakespeare did a play about Coriolanus. I was privileged to see it, one of the famous productions of it, back in 1977 when I was courting Penny Houghton huh. in London. And uh, there's a recent film starring Ralph Fiennes. Yes. Worth watching. Go watch Coriolanus. And here's the point of the man. Coriolanus is a brilliant warrior, and he's extremely proud. He's a member of the Senate, and he's an aristocrat. And Rome at this time is in the Republican stage where the, the plebeians and the patricians are fighting, and a thing happens that actually happened many times in history. The, the plebeians are needed to join the army and fight against an enemy, and they would go and retire and fortify themselves on a nearby hill and refuse to do it until they got certain concessions, often having to do with food and land reform. And in one of those, during Coriolanus' life, and Coriolanus' real name was Marcius Caius, and they were going to go fight the Volskis, whose prime city was Coriolan. And they did that. They retired to a hill, and one of the concessions they got was the appointed appointment of tribunes to speak for the people before the Senate, and they became representatives of the people. Well, Coriolanus goes off to Coriolan, and in this battle, which is a tremendous thing, the, they, they confront the, Volvic, the citizens of Coriolis, the Volskians, outside the city gates, and they win the battle, and the, and the army of the Volski retires inside the city, and Marcus, Marcius Caius goes with them into the city. At first, just one man, and then only about 30. And they're surrounded, and the whole army turns on them. And they fight with such fury that they throw them back. And they're inside the city by themselves. And they get the gates open, and, they, and the army comes and relieves them. They conquer the city. It's a tremendous thing. And for that, Coriolanus, uh, Mar Marcius Caius, is offered a, a horse with ornate armor 
and a great and one tenth of the treasure taken in Karaiwe. And in a brilliant move, he accepts the horse as an honor and refuses the treasure. Hmm. And of course, he, everybody loves him. And so then they give him the name, Coriolanus, the conqueror of Karaiwe. And, and he goes back and he's put up for consul. And that's the senior executive post in Rome. And he served that for one year with one other. They take turns. And uh, that's a big deal to be the consul of Rome. And at this time, to, to be the consul of Rome, you have to display yourself before the people. And they, and they are something of a rabble. And one of the things you're supposed to do is dress plainly and show them your wounds. And he holds them in such contempt that he can't control himself, and he begins to denounce them. He thinks they're beneath him, and he cannot stop himself from showing it. In the, in the play that I saw, and Alan Howard, a great Royal Shakespeare Company actor, he actually is spitting while hmm. he speaks at them, just without spitting at them. He's, just, he's speaking so emphatically, his spittle goes upon them. And it turns into a melee, and that goes on for a while, and he is banished from the city in a trial. And that's terrible, right? And so now this great warrior has been banished from the city, and all he had to do, same thing that Winston Churchill loved, he just had to walk humbly in front of them a little bit, right? And they were going to give him great power and respect for his worthiness of it. Well, he can't bear, and see, it, it, and the point is, it's like a, a thing that's common to me. So I often say to a kid who's the younger sibling of a kid who's a Hillsdale student, they'll say, I don't want to go where my brother went, and I'll say, well, that's just another way of being controlled by your brother. Ha! <laughs> 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 and it's true, right? It's, yes. It always stops them, too. And, <laughs> you know, so he's, you can't make a mark in a place where he's been. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> and they, and they, uh, and Coriolanus is terribly like that. In other words, honor is so important to him, he doesn't understand the real meaning of honor. Now, it's important to lodge at this point that Coriolanus is a mama's boy. He still lives at home with his mother, and his mother has picked his wife, and, uh, uh, and, and you know, they're... So off he goes, and he goes to the Volskys, to Coriolanus, and he goes to the great warrior there, a man named Ophidius, whom he's fought, and they hate each other, and he says... I want to join you. We can conquer Rome. And they go set out to do that. And they destroy Roman armies, and they take many cities outside Rome, and they're besieging the city. And the Romans come and plead with him to come back, and he sits on a throne and greets them haughtily. Then they send the priest, and the priest come and sacrifice and remind him that it's his city and his sacred soil. And he sends them away haughtily. And then they send his mother and his wife. But the mother is the one who's important. In, in the Shakespeare play, the wife is saying that I am his woman, and we are joined as one. And the mother replies, her name is Volumnia. And the mother replies, yes, but I groaned for him. Uh. And so she shows up in front of him, and he bows himself before her, and he calls off the assault. 
and he goes back to Corrali, and then, of course, he's killed. I have to tell people in Plutarch, she says to him, you shall not be able to reach your country unless you trample first upon the corpse of her that brought you into life. Yeah. No wonder he gives up. And see, and, and by the way, she, as, as, as Plutarch points out, she was there in the city. What was going to happen if he sacked the city? Yep. He just couldn't see that far ahead because of his rage. We may have to come back and spend a bit more time on him next week, Dr. Larry Arn. We spent a lot of time on current events this week. We may have to come back to Coriolanus and to the comparison with LCBAs as well as the next pair. Dr. Larry Arn, President of Hillsdale College. Always a pleasure. Hillsdale.edu, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show.